Hey, my name is Tiffany Vaughn, and I'm on a mission to help regular people like me find their voice and then use it for lifting themselves and others up around them. I'm a small town mom to three kiddos with my hubby James, and man, have we been dealing with a lot. But isn't everyone? I lovingly call it our hard, beautiful journey, and I bet that yours is too. In season one, I tossed the bricks from my shoulders that were weighing me down. Bricks that represented shame, embarrassment, regret, loss, you name it, I was feeling it. I am now taking those bricks and building up a stronger foundation for myself and our family. I've created this safe space for me and you to open our hearts and our minds and to use our voices to help others know they are not alone in their struggles. Mental health, marriage and divorce, infertility, parenting, and some soul journey work are all topics that we discuss here. Let's be real for a minute. Life can definitely be hard, but it can also be so dang beautiful. Am I right? So pull up a cozy seat, grab your beverage of choice, and join me as I help others talk about their hard, beautiful journey. I know they will inspire you as much as they inspire me. So let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome to Hard Beautiful Journey. I really don't know if I can contain my excitement about this episode any longer. I have been looking forward to this one being published since the second that I hit the stop recording button because the topic is sex and intimacy. And let's be really, really real for a minute. Both are incredibly important, am I right? My guest today knows her stuff. And I am still sitting here in a cloud of gratitude that she came on my podcast to chat. Dr. Viviana Coles is here. She is president and lead psychologist at her private practice in Houston, as well as president of the National Sex Institute, and has her bachelor's degree in psychology and master's and doctoral degrees in marriage and therapy, family therapy, and is a certified sex therapist. So yeah, she knows a lot about sex and intimacy, and she is here to teach us so much goodness. And she gave me permission to call her Dr. Viv, so that's what I'm going to call her. Since 2003, Dr. Viv has exclusively focused on her work with couples and individuals that are experiencing emotional and physical intimacy issues. She has built a thriving private practice providing relationship therapy, sex therapy, and premarital counseling. Dr. Viv is currently a featured marriage and intimacy expert on Lifetime's hit show, Married at First Sight, and Married at First Sight Unmatchables. And last but not least, Dr. Viv has written what I am predicting is the next five love languages book in terms of scale and readership. Her book is called The Four Intimacy Styles, and it will be out this August. I had the honor of getting a copy early to read, and I cannot wait for everyone to get their hands on this book. So let's get to this interview. Hello, Dr. Viv. How are you doing? I'm so excited to meet you and I'm excited to talk all about the intimacy style. Me too. Oh my goodness. It is so great to have you here. And I have got to say that I have loved every single one of my guests so far, but I'm just going to guess here that this one might have very, very attentive listeners, very attentive. And everybody that I've told that I'm interviewing you about sex and intimacy, they're like, tell me when it's out. (laughs) I need to know when this one is out. So 
I read your book called Four Intimacy Styles, and it is coming out really soon. Do you know the date that it's coming out? So it's on pre-order right now. We're expecting it to be available for distribution. If not, well, by the latest, the first week of August. Yes. I am going to shout this one from the rooftops. I'm going to recommend it to everybody probably till I die because it absolutely... Yeah, um, we'll get into why, (laughs) but there was so much value in this book about the intimacy styles of, of everybody, like everybody has one and understanding um, how those play into, you know, your, your life is going to be very helpful. It was so helpful for me and it's going to be very helpful for so many people. So I cannot wait for it to come out. So, but before we get into the book. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Viviana Coles. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified sex therapist. I've been seeing clients since 2003. And currently I do have a private practice. It's called Houston Relationship Therapy. I see clients from all over the world. My practitioners do as well. Um, But I'm also a featured expert on Married at First Sight, which is on the Lifetime Network. And I'm married at first sight and matchables, where I'm an expert on dating and relationships. So I started to write this book intentionally in October of 2020. So not that long ago. No. But the information that I've been gathering has been going on for the past decade. And I, you know, there are other books that I had on my plate that I thought, you know what? these would be really kind of fun and interesting to write. But the one that really needs to get out there, especially right now, is the four intimacy styles. So I hit the ground running. I have an amazing team of women um, to help guide me through the process of self-publishing. I'm a bit of a control freak, as everyone who knows me well, <laughs> knows well. And I... So I get you. Yay. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the whole process has been definitely challenging, but so rewarding. Um, The Four Intimacy Styles was born from the idea that I would get at least weekly, several clients who would ask me, you know, we know our our five love languages, we know which ones we are, but what about sex? And when you get that question over and over and over again, and don't really have a succinct way to then share okay, well, so, you know, your love languages and now this, that's where this was born from. I said, you know what? I know patterns. I am noticing patterns. I've noticed them for the past 15 years. Let me gather information from the past five to 10 years and see where these patterns are. And thus the four intimacy styles was born. So you do know that the five love languages book has sold like billions of copies, right? I am well aware because I have purchased a few myself. So I'm just <laughs> I saying. Signed copy. I even have a signed copy by the Dr. Gary Chapman. Oh there is, goodness. it is so, I, I'm so, it sounds condescending, but I'm so proud of any time that there's a therapist or a counselor who can make a difference in the everyday lexicon that is love, that is psychotherapy, that is intimacy. 
So I have been a huge proponent of the five love languages. I ask all my clients, I ask them to do the test. I, you know, now there's different love languages. So I'm a huge fan of it because I see that it resonates with just about every single person on the earth. Um, so of course I would, oh my gosh, it would be amazing if it, if the four intimacy styles was to even, you know, hold hold on to maybe like a percentage point of what the five love languages yeah. has. But I do believe in this message. And I do believe that when couples are talking about what's going on in their interactions, what's going on in their relationship, it is going to make a difference in everyone's life, including their kids, their family, their employers. So it's, it's really great. Um, I love to even imagine that it could be mentioned in the same sentence as the five love languages, but that's years to come. Maybe <laughs> I'm just predicting. Okay. Just predicting. Oh, we'll oh wow. <laughs> um, okay. So there is four parts to this book. And the first part is seeking intimacy. And one of the sections is made for each other. And that's what I found interesting about that section is the harmful messages that people might receive as they are growing up that might play into, you know, their intimacy style. Now you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So there, it's not that everyone receives harmful messaging, but it's, we don't think about it until we realize, oh, that was harmful. When things are going well in our sex lives, when things are going well in our own sexuality, we don't tend to think about it. But when it's not going well and when there are problems, it can account for like 70% of how you feel about your overall life and about your um, relational satisfaction. So it's a really big deal when it's not going well, which is why I dove right in. I wanted my readers to realize if they're experiencing issues, they're not alone. And one of the main reasons that we experience issues as adults is because of the messages that we've internalized from our caregivers, from childhood, and of course, from society. And we might continue to foster and nourish those negative messages through the information that we allow into our lives as adults. So diving right in, it's, it truly does make a difference the messages that you're given, the messages that you take in. If they become myths that you are able to debunk, great, but you need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. You need to be aware of the work that you've done um, through adulthood to say, those messages don't resonate for me. My experiences show me that they're wrong. And, you know, I, I'm a parent of two and I know you are as well. You've got kiddos and it is... Um, it's kind of terrifying to think that we shape our kids' sexuality and the messages that they get. But if we're not aware or if we're, or if we're not educated or if we don't really research how this can affect them, we can do a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, I dive into right away is you're not alone if you're experiencing sexual issues. So uh, talking about my kids and one of them is coming into the teen years. God help me. Um, oh gosh, when... <laughs> help me. Um, so when do you, when do you start talking about it and like be real about it? And so that you foster a healthy sexual sexuality in your child. Well, I think 
one of the easiest ways we can first dive into teaching healthy sexuality with our kids is at a very young age using the appropriate terminology. So using the words penis, vagina, vulva, clitoris, testicles, all of that, anus, um, buttocks, all of that is very important. I think that it, when we put funny names and use euphemisms, what we do is we set it apart as unique and different. And as kids, unique and different, and even as adults, uh, you know, unique and different is uh, a little bit taboo. It maybe has a little bit of fear and mystery. There is no mystery. We know so much about our bodies. We know what an elbow is. We know what our, what our navel is. We, why say anything differently? It automatically makes it sound like there's something different or wrong, mm -hmm. um, especially with the tone that we use. So making sure that you use proper terminology is key. The other thing is to really promote consent and privacy. So if you're swatting your kid's hand away when they're touching their genitals, think about the message that you're getting. One is it, you're embarrassed, probably. You're trying to avoid them, avoid them from embarrassing you but the message that you're giving them might not be the same or might not be what you want. And certainly it's not healthy. So I know that with my kids, what I would teach them from very early age is that they needed to have clean hands if they were gonna touch themselves, yeah. whether it was on the changing table or in their rooms or in the bath, it was always wash your hands because hygiene is very important. Yeah. And it was do it in private. So of course, if they're, if they're little bitty, there is no privacy there with you all the time, but I would, I would at least use the words privacy. You know, this should be something that you do in privacy because the truth is for many adults, the issue is not that their kids are touched for many parents. The issue is not that their kids are touching themselves. It's that they're, they might, oh no, if they do it, then they might do it when there's family around. They might do it in the locker room. They might do it, you know, out when they're playing games. And so it's really important to remember what it is that we're actually trying to get across. Mm -hmm. The consent part is very important. Giving them, giving them the, the words to say, yes, it's okay for you to touch yourself. It's your body. You own it. You yep. can do that. But no one else can do that in that way. Mo you know, mom and dad need to be there when you're present with a doctor, but you're allowed to touch yourself, absolutely, but no one else should unless they're examining you and when we're around. So there's, there's always these little positive, healthy, uh, very concrete messages that we can get across that are usually true across the board. Mm -hmm. But if you avoid those messages, they're gonna fill in the gaps. They're gonna read your tone, they're gonna read your faces mm -hmm. and they're gonna come up with their own idea about what's okay and what isn't. This is so valuable. Oh my goodness. I have, well, I have a 13, almost 13 year old daughter and I have twin boys that are eight and I am guilty of doing exactly what you said I shouldn't do. And so this is so, so valuable. And I have learned, you know, how to handle little boys now. Um, my husband, obviously he's like, what? <laughs> Just leave him alone. But no, this has been really very helpful for me. Thank you. Good. All right. So um, in this section also, there is the illusion of permanence and the top three marriage killers, 
money, sex, and kids. But you in your book say that your experience is that the true assassin out of all of those is sex. Yeah. Tell me about that. So I know that it's a little bit controversial because we have heard for decades that money, sex, and kids, those are the three that just kind of take turns taking up the top pole position, right? But what what I have noticed um, across the board is that people can overcome finances because you can separate them. If you really have to, you can separate them and still control your own. Mm-hmm. When it comes to kids and parenting, there will be outside forces that will force you to do things a certain way, yep. quote unquote, the right way, yep. the legal way, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to sex, it truly has to be something that is developed, nurtured, maintained, transformed just between the two of you. And if you can't get that, if you cannot figure out how to have a healthy, lasting, physical, intimate life, most people will feel miserable. It will, it will bleed out to the date night. It will bleed out to the family functions. It will bleed out to sleeping, everything. Mm-hmm. So I go out there and I'm just going to you know, say it as I see it, which is sex is the one that if you can't overcome the issue surrounding it, you're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the one um, part of the book is um, the sensual bond. And I'm just going to read this part uh, from the book, if that's okay. Of course. The benefits for friendship with your partner, but your sensual bond with each other is the one thing that separates your partnership from any other relationship you have. Can you dig into that a little bit deeper? Sure. So many people wonder you know, why is sex such a big deal? Why does it have to be such a big deal? We, we get along so well with great parents. We're um, emotionally intimate, right? There's so many positives that can come outside of that. But the reason that sexuality and that romantic side is so important is because it's the only thing that is just between the two of you unless you have a certain agreement otherwise, but let's just say from the vast majority of couples out there, it is just the two of you. And when you feel like that one thing that just the two of you can do, that sacred piece is missing, it can feel like, who cares if we're friends? I've got, I've got a brother, I've got a sister, I've got, you know, I've got coworkers, I've got parents. It's that it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And when I ask my clients, you know, why is sex so important to you? Why is it that you want to work on this with me? Sometimes they'll get right to it and say, because everything else is going great, but this is the one thing that's missing. And others will say, because I don't feel like we have a full, complete relationship missing this one thing. On top of that, let's just talk about the physical urges that are screaming at them almost on the daily, whether it's to point out that desire is lacking or to point out that desire is through the roof. That discrepancy is something that most people cannot ignore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The other big section in here, 
And I told you in, in the notes that I sent you this, I could talk about for at least three hours is the public <laughs> priorities. And when things start, you know, you have kids and they have sports and you have this and he has that and our dish is more important than actually getting busy. Right. Like what, what have you seen with priority planning? You know, we've, what I wanted to do in this section is just to point out um, what everybody realizes, which is that when it comes to doing things that we really, really feel like we need to do versus things that we want to do, everyone kind of decides that. They decide whether they want to pull out 10 minutes to scroll through social media. They decide whether they want to schedule an hour for a massage or a workout or meal planning or whatever it is. But when it comes to sex, it almost feels like it's an afterthought. Why should, you're not supposed to have to plan sex. It's supposed to be spontaneous and all this nonsense. But what, I'm, what I wanted to point out is that you may think that all of these other things, including parenting, are worth taking that number one spot in your priority list. What I would venture to say is ask anyone who doesn't have Ask anyone who does have a healthy sex life, all of those other priorities tend to kind of fall in, in place underneath and do okay. Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to, you know, get a CPS called on them because they decided to have sex twice a week. <laughs> no, Nobody is going to lose their job because they spent 20 minutes, you know, doing some sort of central activity with their partner once a week. Like we need to realize that, the other things that mean something in our lives will continue to mean something in our lives, but we have to carve out the time for the sexuality and for the physical intimacy in order to feel good about those other things. Yeah. Your job can mean so much to you and take up so much time, but ask anyone who's experiencing issues at home in their relationship and they don't experience the same joy, fulfillment, reward from their jobs. Everything gets kind of muddied everything you know the the dye in the water starts to spread if you're not experiencing that closeness at home mm -hmm. yeah for sure um there was one part of the book as well where you had to answer three questions and i'm going to read those questions okay okay how do you know if you are coasting sexually have your sexual interactions become predictable and boring have your sexual and sensual experiences become less and less frequent? And have you begun to avoid any conversations with your partner about your sex life? If you answered yes to two or more, you may be coasting your way to a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think a lot of people just don't realize that when they feel like things are going okay, that it's still not okay. <laughs> it isn't enough to just be having an average experience sexually with your partner. And let me tell you why, because there will be a time where there's a dip, where there's a lull, where there's a drought. And if you haven't, if you haven't been able to um, build up any sort of cushion or, um, you know, momentum, it's going to feel like the end of the world. And it's going to cause a lot of anxiety, depression, all of that. So mm -hmm. it's so important to constantly be you know, working towards it and nurturing your sexual relationship, it's not enough. 
it's not good enough to be just okay, just fine. And I, again, it's one more thing to add to your plate, but it's so worth it. If you're looking to have a long lasting relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about that lull or the dip or the (laughs) drought. My listeners will know from my story about my infertility battle, our infertility battle. And I have a lot of followers and friends that have also gone through this infertility battle. And from my perspective and from my journey, it, the infertility journey is a killer for the sex drive. And like, it's horrendous because especially when it's a long infertility journey, because it, it becomes a task. It becomes, you know, like a job and one that you keep failing at over and over and over again. And then there's resentment. So have you seen that in your practice, um, with other, like of your patients, the infertility journey? Absolutely. Um, it, you know, first of all, my heart goes out to everyone who is struggling to conceive, who's struggling to make their family what they hope it would look like. And it, it may come across a little bit callous to say this, but I promise we'll talk more about it and you'll see, I don't mean it this way. But let me ask you, as well as your listeners and viewers, did you separate reproduction from recreation? Or were those two things together? Did you always have reproductive intercourse or did you have reproductive intercourse plus have some recreational sensuality? That's a really good question. Um, Well, since we started trying pretty much like on our, at our wedding, because we got married in Mexico, uh, it was always reproduction. Okay. Always. So I know that again, it, 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 it doesn't, again, I don't want to make it sound like it's so easy to do, but if it's something that you put on your radar or if somebody else who's listening can put it on their radar, it might save them from this, you know, this desire killer, which is infertility issues and fertility struggles. I want you to start thinking about sensuality and sexuality as going hand in hands, but they're more like flirting BFFs. They're not, they're not one in the same. So intercourse for reproduction can look one way, can feel one way, but then there's this whole side of sexuality. That's only about pleasure. That's only about giving. That's only about bonding. Mm -hmm. And while you may during the time of infertility and working through that, want to focus all of your intercourse efforts towards reproduction. I get it. Check, done, do that. The pleasure part, the massages, the oral, the digital stimulation, the toys, the role play, the sexy talk, that can still be happening in order to kind of fuel the fires that is desire. Between the sessions of the reproduction. (laughs) Sure, exactly. Yeah. Or, or if you wanted to get very, um, maybe engineer wise and systematic about it, you can have it interspersed. You can say, okay, this session will start with this, but it will always end with, you know, intercourse or, you know, you can figure out what works for you there, mm-hmm. but your body 
needs to experience that arousal and not always have it be associated with intercourse for reproduction. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I wish I knew you 10 years ago, <laughs> like honest to God, because yeah, when, it, when you're in that zone and you're in that desperation mentality of, I just want a child, like, seriously, what is going, like, what is wrong with my body? First of all, you start really kicking your own ass, right? Like about what, what is wrong with your parts? <laughs> like, why can I not get pregnant? I don't understand this. And so the sex part becomes like the last thing on your mind when it's just like, what's wrong with my body that I cannot get pregnant. Um, so no, I, I completely can see how having those two different frames would absolutely keep that spark there for sure. So I hope well, it at least gives you a fighting chance, right? Yeah. I mean, but I think that for most people who go into and, and consider quote unquote sex only intercourse, then it like, doesn't make sense to think that anything else could happen. But if you're open and honest with your partner about how the two things, how intercourse is no longer really pleasurable, it doesn't do it for you, so to say, but I would like to continue to have at least some fun in this way. Um, you know, I know that ejaculation at that point is probably pretty valuable. So maybe it's foreplay for more, maybe it's, I mean, there's a way to talk about these things and there's a way to have it happen to where you can still have at least some pleasure peek out every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, for some people, they do a really good job about that. And for others, it just feels like an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then the actual time when the kids are born and I had twins. Where's that? <laughs> wow. Yeah. There is absolutely no thinking about sex when there's twins in any house, I don't think, but, um, it's definitely important. I know to keep that going. What do you recommend to new parents? Yeah, well, for sure. Being open and honest about the importance of solo pleasuring during that time, um, you're doing it as an investment in your own pleasure arousal and your own sexual response cycle so that you can be ready, willing, able, excited when the two of you do finally get a chance to be able to connect for 10 to 15 minutes at tops, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I think for a lot of people, they think, well, if you have time for solo pleasure, then you have time for intercourse. But I think the reality is that if you're like a lot of people, hygiene is a big deal, your mental state and where you are, um, it, it's okay to have one of one parent, you know, focusing on the kids while the other gets 10 to 30 minutes, maybe even an hour on their own to do whatever they want to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, getting away or sneaking away for some couple time that can be very scary at times. It can be, uh, it can be really not even pleasurable because your brain is thinking, you know, it's in an anxious surveillance mode. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think solo pleasuring for sure is very important to kind of keep, again, keep the fire stoked, um, but then also carving out time for the two of you to explore each other, for the two of you to say, look, we do care about each other. We went through so much to have kids. 
whether you had to do much or not, because there are a lot of couples who don't have this experience um, of fertility struggles, but they still end up focusing on only being parents and they forget about the reason that they even did this to begin with, which is usually uh, when you plan it, it's something that you wanted and you thought this is gonna be an extension of our love. Mm-hmm. And it sounds hokey, but it's very true for so many people. Well, you got to keep up with the love part or else you're making yourself liars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I So on the solo, solo pleasure part, I have heard from m- many people over the years that where their partner is only doing that and avoiding the actual event, <laughs> what do you say to that? Well, I think for a lot of people, it's because solo pleasuring is just so much easier, quote unquote. It's, um, they know exactly what it takes. They know how long it takes. They don't have to deal with any sort of shame, guilt, embarrassment, judgment. And it's just kind of, you know, like, you know what you can, you know, when you open up your refrigerator, you know, what's going to be a satisfying meal. You know how to make it, you know how to cook it, it's done. But if you had to think about it for the whole family, you'd probably be like, oh, okay, let me think twice. Same kind of thing is happening here. I think that if you can start to think about it in terms of solo pleasuring as an investment in keeping up your own body's desire levels for the future, when you finally do get to uh, carve out that time and get to a place where you really are focused again on your sex life, which hopefully is something that happens throughout pregnancy, throughout birth and throughout, uh, you know, postpartum time. I actually did my doctoral project on maintaining sexual intimacy during pregnancy because it is such a big deal for so many people. And they do end up being alienated from each other physically for a year Mm -hmm. uh, or more. So, yeah, I just think going back to solo pleasuring, when when you can explain to your partner why you think it's important but also let them know, let's carve out time to where we can have fun together because I don't want it to become a threat. That's the last thing you want. You don't want your toys. You don't want your fantasies. You don't want your erotica or alone time to become a threat to your partner. Mm -hmm. And so having that conversation about, look, you know, the American Medical Association wants men to exercise their prostate, to ejaculate three to four times a week. But they never said it has to happen through intercourse or it has to happen in a partnered experience. You can make it that way if that's what you're into. Um, Same with women. I think that it's very important for our pelvic floor to continue to exercise and and hopefully get some orgasm going uh, as often as you can. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be with a partner though. Now, if it's never happening with a partner, then we need to start thinking about possibly seeing a sex therapist to talk about why that is the case. What, what makes it so appealing? What makes it so much easier? What make, you know, it could be that it's a relational issue. Oftentimes it is. And other times it's just physiologically, that's what you're into because that's what you've trained your body to be into. And you've gotten into this habit, but that can absolutely be worked on and retrained. I do it all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Part two of this book, peeling back the layers of intimacy, the mind body connection in silence speaks louder than words, nonverbal cues. (laughs) Uh, I might might give some nonverbal cues. (laughs) So I'd like to hear how those can play into the intimacy 
of a couple? Yeah, so I, we talk about sexual communication and everywhere you're learning about sexuality, it's all about how to help, you know, how to have healthy sexual communication, how to be open with your boundaries and be transparent and learn about what it is that you want so that then you can share it with your partner. What we don't often talk about and which I just had to include in this book, but I see it a lot with my clients is that when you're not saying anything, it's still getting across a message. People might think, well, when we do talk about sex, it goes well, so we're fine. No, in not talking about it, in, in experiencing, you know, kind of uh, some silence and quiet when it comes to what's going well and what's going badly in your relationship, your partner is going to come up with a narrative. We do that all the time. Mm-hmm. We always come up, we fill in narratives all the time. Yep. So when you're rolling over, when you're putting your mouth guard in, when you're putting your sleep apnea mask on, when you are uh, avoiding going into the bedroom after your partner's gone in because you're hoping that they fall asleep before you, all of that sends a message. Mm-hmm. And it's it can be misinterpreted, but usually it's pretty darn clear, which is I don't want to be put in a position where sex is on the menu. Right. And, you know, sometimes people take certain medications. Sometimes people drink too much. Sometimes people eat the wrong things. All the while, the message that their partner is getting across the table is, we're not going to have any, any sexuality tonight. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, no. And it could be something as simple as always inviting people out with you, having your friends and family come over and spending the night, uh, having kids come over and, and do slumber parties. There are lots of different ways that we avoid sexuality or that our partners interpret us as, as uh, avoiding sexuality. And that speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. What if every obstacle is removed and the desire is still not coming back? Yeah. So that's a big one. That's probably its own uh, that's podcast. A four hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what I, what I've noticed. There are times where the obstacles, like like you just said, the priorities are managed, the obstacles are removed, and it's still not happening. That's where it's even more important to know where you are with your intimacy style. Because it, unlike the five love languages where you have a primary and a secondary, my, and, and that your goal is to learn how to speak your, your, your uh, partner's love language, with the four intimacy styles, the goal is in order to have lasting physical intimacy, you want to round out your intimacy style by having a quarter of each of the four styles present in nearly or all sexual interactions. And the reason for that is because everyone has different motivators. Everyone has different um, enticements to sexuality and what they get out of it. So if you're able to touch on all of them, touch, no pun intended, (laughs) on all of them during a sexual experience, you're that much more likely to hit the, hit, you know, the bullseye, right? Um, And to get there almost every single time. Now, if you experience all four of those, and if you've rounded out your intimacy style and the book helps you to understand how to do that and gives you, you know, very concrete ways on how to do that and help you to come up with your own as a couple, then you 
we'll start to remove the barriers because sexuality is something to look forward to. It's not just a chore. It doesn't, it's not just a physical act. It's not just an emotional bonding either. Mm-hmm. It's so much more than that. And so then it becomes something that you want to invest in. You are motivated to do. You will carve out time because of what it means for you and the ability to have that relationship that you want forever. Mm-hmm. And so that leads into the four intimacy styles. And there is a test, a quiz that you can do online. And of course I took it because I was dying to know (laughs) what my results were. So the four intimacy styles are giving, bonding, release, and responsive. Let's talk about, I'm going to actually give my results. Okay. Let me hear what was your bonding? My bonding was 33%. Okay. And release? 28%. Giving? 39%. Okay. And then responsive big fat zero. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's interesting. So what, what based off of now having read the book, what do you think you would need to work on in order to really round out your intimacy style? And then of course, I'll give you some, some correction or maybe some addition. Absolutely. The responsive one and um, maybe scale back on the giving and bonding so that I can get to, you know, the 25%. Um, so adding in more responsive for sure. Can you tell me why you think you're not responsive at all and what, what you interpret that to mean? What does that look like to you? Um, I was thinking of that this morning, actually. And I, I don't know. I don't know why that rated so low because there are moments where I absolutely think that I am responsive. Do you want to talk about what that, what that style means? So responsive for, for people who are listening and haven't gotten, um, gotten done their quiz yet, which I hope you will go to fourintimacystyles.com to take the quiz and find out for responsive people, what they experience is satisfaction that comes from responding to their partner's needs for sexuality. It isn't something that happens spontaneously for them all the time. Mm -hmm. They have to listen and read cues from their partner. They um, don't even really think about sex until it's something that is uh, brought up to them Mm -hmm. and offered up to them as a possibility. These are the people who think, hmm, I didn't plan on doing this and I wasn't really looking forward to it, but now that I'm doing this, it feels pretty great. Yeah. I do this more often. (laughs) I'm I'm pretty happy right now. (laughs) Yeah. This is pretty nice. Um, and, and again, I've had so many people who think that there's something wrong with them because they don't experience spontaneous desire, but the stats show that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. So many people do not experience spontaneous desire for sexuality. There's nothing wrong with that, but it does mean that they have to then go out of their way because it's not an internal motivator. Mm -hmm. They have to go out of their way to make it something that is at the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so it can be a little bit of an uphill battle. Now you are saying your, your test results show that you aren't very responsive at all. The reason why I think it would be important for you to be responsive is because listening for when 
and, and watching for when your partner is desiring of you instead of always being the person that's initiating, always being the person that's like, oh, you want sex? It's right here. <laughs> Busted. Wait, did I hear sex? And this happens, this happens in interactions and relationships all the time where I have to tell people stop over functioning so that your partner can meet you and actually be a partner. You see it probably with parenting relationships where it's like the mother will typically over function and it's constantly doing everything. Oh, it's just easier if I do it myself. Oh, it's just easier. Oh, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Yeah. And I have to, I have to remind them, okay, but you had to learn at some point you're robbing the father, you're robbing your co-parent, you know, in whatever relationship you have, whatever dynamics you're robbing your co-parent from the ability to learn and then feel confident and then be able to initiate these behaviors. It's the same thing with sex. If you're constantly ready or if you're constantly there, then your partner doesn't get to practice the discomfort and awkwardness that comes from initiating sex, the practicing getting um, desensitized to rejection every once in a while. Yeah, that's so true. If it's, and then they also can reinterpret or misinterpret people who are who are lacking responsiveness in sexuality as, well, if they're not coming towards me, then that's a clear cut sign that they don't want to. When that may not be the case, you might be kind of maybe even made a pact by yourself, something you didn't share with your partner. This happens all the time. Well, I'm not going to initiate and we're going to see if, we, if ever, anything ever happened. <laughs> uh, busted. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So it is very valuable to be responsive. Um, it's very, it's very valuable to have that quarter of each. And if I think for a lot of people, just like, again, with like with the five love languages, something just tends to be easier. It comes more naturally. It tends to be at the forefront. Yeah. That's the one that I would want you to just back off of a little bit and put it towards the one that's the least mm-hmm. to see what it's like to allow your partner to step towards you. That is really good info. And I think the, the response of being zero is, and I've, I've shared this with many people that I know, but it's like, I was in a hibernation for a long time because of all the stuff that I dealt with. Right. And it's like, holy smoke, something woke up, (laughs) you know? And, and now it's like, okay, I'm, I'm good now. I am ready. And then think about the, think about that what that does though for your partner because they don't experience the same internal feelings the desire the physiological the arousal that you are um but you're basically saying hi i'm back are you ready you should be okay let's do this (laughs) and it's totally discounting where he is or where she is and their really you know in their own sexuality in their Mm -hmm. own timeline so i think it's important to say, I get it. And I'm glad that you're experiencing this, you know, real uptick in your sexual desire and, and maybe even spontaneous desire, but your partner is not your, it's not a robot. <laughs> right. Your partner has to be able to then still make choices just because y'all were lacking for so long. Doesn't mean it's now time to make up for it. That's not the way our bodies work. That's not the way our brains work. Mm-hmm. So let your partner know, Hey, I am experiencing lots of spontaneous desire. 
but I'm going to be taking my care of myself because you can't possibly um, want to experience sexuality with me every single time I am feeling a little randy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's too much else going on in our world. You're going to dehydrate. <laughs> Absolutely. You need to rehydrate. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. So the next one is the bonding. Which one do you want to go through next? Bonding? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we can go with bonding. Um, so bonding is, long story short, it's for people who need to feel emotionally connected and get emotional connection from experiencing the physical. This, what a lot of people, what I, the feedback that I've gotten from clients so far is that they think that bonding is what sex is supposed to be about. Like that's, that's the one that you should feel. Mm-hmm. No. The fairy tales <laughs> and the movies. The, and- right. The fairy tale in the movies where, oh my gosh, you have sex like incredibly, you know, just bonding. Well, guess what? Our bodies were made to where sometimes sex is just sex. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sex is just that release. Sometimes sex is more physiological. Sometimes sex is a way to experience only your partner's pleasure through you or vicariously or to be um, kind of a, have it attributed to you like with, with the giving style. So while bonding is very common and so many people do experience it, they can feel very uh, thrown off when their partner says, Oh, that was nice. Okay. Now let's go, you know, let's go out to eat or let's, um, you know, I'm going to go work on the car because they're like, well, wait a minute. Like, let's just bask in each other's. Well, it's because their partner didn't experience it in the exact same way through bonding. And then they feel like, oh my gosh, I've been rebuffed. No, you weren't rebuffed. You just focus way too much on the bonding part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Theirs might be released. That might be there. There might be, there might, yeah, they, and again, these are all of these miscommunications or misinterpretations or mis- mixed signals. They're remedied when you round out your intimacy style. Mm-hmm. So then we have um, release, which is when someone experiences the motivation of the high, the physiological high and ecstasy that comes from having some sort of sexual inter- inter- interaction with the partner. Uh, they experience the rush, the endorphins, the, the bonding, the oxytocin. And that's what makes them think, I definitely want to do this again. And I want to do it with you. Yeah. Um, and then we have giving. And those are people who are motivated by, you know, oh my gosh, I just love to please my partner and seeing that I give them this pleasure and that I'm a part of that and that I'm not looking really for anything for myself, but if it's all about you, I am happy. You know, they're giddy. They get Mm -hmm. really, they get off on giving off. That's actually how my husband described it when I was like, okay, so this He's like, oh yeah, it sounds like they're giving off. And I thought that is super smart. Yeah. So we're coining that. <laughs> we're coining giving off. Um, these are the people who are like, I want to please you. Your pleasure is my pleasure. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will think that's not true. You can't possibly experience that much pleasure by giving somebody else's pleasure. You just want the word to get around of how much <laughs> of a giving lover you are. Well, yeah. no, remember, this is for people who... We're talking about people who want to stay with their partner forever. All they want to do 
is make sure that they feel affirmed by your satisfaction. Mm -hmm. That is a a huge motivator for them. Mm -hmm. And then we talked a little bit about um, responsive. And those are the people who, you know, they, they feel like sexuality is something that they don't really think about until it's happening, but they enjoy it when they do. And they feel good about kind of filling in the holes, so to say, um, <laughs> that are in, you know, their sex life. So they're, they're just, they don't tend to think about it on their own, but when it's brought up, they find motivation to do it and they enjoy it and they feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And so your view is that um, it's important to try and round out all four equally in order to have good intimacy with your partner. And it's not just in the moment. I'm talking the long game, right? Mm -hmm. Because my goodness, depending on what you want to get out of any one given, you know, uh, sexual experience, I mean, the sky's the limit, but I'm talking about people who are married, who are committed to each other, who are living together, who maybe have kids, who have property together, who want to stay together. They want the forever. And they know that it's not enough to be best friend. Mm -hmm. They know that physical intimacy is just as important as emotional intimacy. So they're going to overall try to round out their intimacy style so that they can have that forever. So is physical intimacy more important than emotional or do you think it's equal? I think it's equal. I think that um, depending on what, Part of, like right now, uh, you talked about kind of going through this sexual reawakening. You came out of hibernation. <laughs> yep. Physical intimacy feels pretty darn important. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe for now in this phase of your life, it feels more important. But the truth is, without that emotional intimacy, the pleasure will lack. The mm-hmm. pleasure won't be able to keep up with with um, the lack of emotional intimacy. So I do believe that they're both very symbiotic. And I think that at least from a conceptual or idealized place, they should be equal. And if they are equal, would it be even more mind blowing? (laughs) Absolutely. Is that your experience? (laughs) Well, my own experience, but also uh, research shows that sexual satisfaction goes higher and higher as two people get to know each other and feel more emotionally intimate. This, again, there's this sense of lack of inhibition. There's a sense of acceptance. There's a sense of this is just us. It's sacred. We can explore more. Couples who tend to feel emotionally intimate can experience more varied physical intimacy, which is important because we're all different. And over time, different things tend to excite us and and arouse us. So yes, absolutely. I think it's very important to have both of those. I have one more question and it ties back again to the love languages because your book is going to be that big. Um, (laughs) So is there intimacy styles that don't mesh or that are hard to work through? Yes, there are some that tend to do better um, and are more seamless. Somebody who is bonding and somebody who's responsive predominantly 
they are going to struggle more because what they're going to experience as somebody who's bonding uh, or more like, you know, primarily bonding is that they're going to lose that feeling of closeness, even if they're emotionally doing everything it takes to be emotionally intimate. If the physicality isn't there because the responsive person is like, just not really, it's not on their radar, Mm -hmm. then they will feel like they're alone. They will feel lonely and they will start to feel resentful. Same thing with, um, you know, giving, giving tends to be okay with bonding release. Not so much because like I said, the the person who's bonding is going to want to kind of bask in the afterglow together. And the person with release is like either going to go to sleep Yep. Or, <laughs> or they're going to fired up and they're going to go rearrange the closet, you know, <laughs> and yep. it can feel like, well, wait a minute, did you just use me? No, they <laughs> did not just use you. Yeah. <laughs> and again, cool. that's in my book that you, it, I put kind of which ones tend to go well, which ones tend to struggle a little bit more. But again, if we can just keep it simple and think about it in terms of you need to have a little bit of everything, then you don't have to worry so much about that. Yeah. And the the book goes into lots of different strategies on how to balance those out a bit. I do have one more question. I forgot about this one because it is happening more and more. And I actually hear about it more and more sleep divorce. And that is um, definitely not a secret that James and I have sleep divorced and it's all due to his snoring because I can't, I'm a very light sleeper. So what do you recommend for those couples that have decided to sleep divorce to keep their intimacy intact? Mm -hmm. So first of all, let's just address the fact that sleep divorce sounds like such an ugly term. It's an ugly term. It's an ugly term. (laughs) What would you use instead? I I would say separate sleep areas. Okay. They just have different separate sleep areas. I've I've done media on this and every time I'm like, I don't like that term because, but I would just say that you have different sleep areas now, but I think it's amazing. I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful option. Sleep is so important. Mm -hmm. It is so important to our physical health and our mental health. And if you're not able to get that by sleeping in the same bed as your partner, forget sex. You're going to be experiencing all sorts of physiological issues. And remember, everything that you can do for your physical health to improve it is going to help your sexual health. So I'm a huge fan of that. Now, if it's for a time period or if it's forever, that's up to you. My husband and I, when the kids were small, I'm one of those people who can wake up and go right back to sleep. Mm -hmm. He cannot. If he's up, that's it. He's up, you know, 3 a.m. That's it. So uh, we absolutely had different separate areas when the kids were younger. And, um, and now, my goodness, we have multiple fans, we have sound machines, we have different kinds of beds, you know, that we've tried. Fortunately, we found something that works. But what I would say is just because you don't sleep in the same areas does not mean that you're not going to have opportunities for sex. Right? Actually, it's even more intentional, you might even get a little bit more variety you know, trying something in one of your, in your sleep space versus his, try something in the couch, try something in the kitchen. You know, you might have a little bit more variety because you're sleeping in different areas. And I, I like the idea that it becomes more intentional and it's not something that it's like, 
well, you rolled over, your erection touched me. So I guess now that's a sign that we're supposed to have sex or you nudge them or you wake up and it's like, okay, let's do this. I like that. It's more of a, Hey, you know, I brush my teeth. I'm coming over. Yeah. Um, it's I'm coming to your place. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a bad thing at all, but I, I'm not going to lie. I think sleep is so important and you got to do whatever you got to do. Sleep and me are tight. Like we are besties. And so when it's not happening, I am not a nice person to be around. So it is what we needed to do for sure. So where can people find you, Dr. Viv? Yes. So anywhere online, just search up Dr. Viviana. And it's usually just spelled out all my social media handles, YouTube, everything. And then the book, it's called The Four Intimacy Styles. You can also find it at drviviana.com. It's only available through my website. And um, I hope to keep it that way for a long time because I'm not a big fan of uh, sharing rights and money with (laughs) big companies that, you know, really didn't do anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And the quiz Uh, is there as well, right? The quiz is there as well. Take the quiz, take the quiz. quiz. Exactly. And if you go onto my LinkedIn profile, or if you go into linktree.com slash Dr. Viviana, you can sign up, you can sign up for the quiz. You can sign up to get a, the introduction of the book for free. So you can get a sense of it while you're waiting for the distribution to happen sometime late this summer. So excited. Oh my goodness. I cannot wait for people to get their hands on this book and for them to hear this interview because so much value, so much value. So thank you so much for your time today. I am beyond grateful for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Viv, for being here with my audience and I today. There is so much value in what you shared. And I know with absolute certainty that your book, The Four Intimacy Styles, is going to help so many couples and individuals understand each other more when it comes to sex and intimacy. Coming up in September, I will be taking on my first coaching clients, and I am so excited to offer three types of coaching in the fall. And all of them are centered around empowering women to start using their voices. The coaching I will offer is soul coaching, podcast training, and I'll also be introducing my Women Speak Circle events. More info on all of these will be introduced in the last episode of this season at the end of July, so please be sure and listen and watch my social media channels and website. Until next time, please be kind and stay well. Bye-bye.